Who am I? Who are you? It's a question of identity. It's probably the greatest question of identity. But how do you answer that question? Uh, Most of us tend to opt for the obvious, who am I? I'm David Dunlop. But that's my name. It's not really my identity. I'm a Baptist minister. Or is that what I do? It's just my job. I'm a husband to Glennis. I'm a dad to Shannon and Cara and Kristen. I'm a son of Charlie and Maisie. I'm a brother of Trish. Is that my identity? Or are those simply my family connections? My family tree? I'm a Chelsea supporter. Let's not go there. Uh, But who am I? See, the truth is that lots of those facts and more help to define who I am. But the question I want us to think about this morning is what is our primary identity? What's yours? It's a good question, maybe a bit heavy for a summer Sunday morning. But the reason that this is such an important question is because who we are And how we see ourselves will dictate how we live. It provides meaning. It's going to provide a sense of belonging. Or if you struggle with your identity. If you're not sure who you really are, then you may wrestle with a sense of meaninglessness, of isolation, of loneliness, of insecurity. And as we work our way through this next section in Galatians, I'm going to come back to that subject and these issues. But for now, let's pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. It's page 1170 in the the Bibles in the pews. Let me give you a bit of a recap. Paul hasn't exactly been at his most diplomatic. Whenever in, in the very first verse, he calls those reading this letter for the first time, you foolish Galatians. Or you crazy Galatians. Or you dear idiots. It's not entirely complimentary. But the reason for such strong language, we said this two weeks ago, was because Paul passionately cared for these people. And he passionately cared about their understanding of the gospel. And if you were here two weeks ago, you might recall how we reflected on Paul's desire for the Galatian Christians to stay focused on the crucified Christ. Never, he said, lose sight of the cross keep it in high definition and we ended our service a fortnight ago with this prayer Father, and these words are familiar to many of you, Father keep us near the cross bring its scenes before us may we walk from day to day with its shadows over us how have you got on in the past 14 days with that? How have you kept the cross at the forefront of your minds amidst all the busyness of life? Dave was very honest this morning as he started his this service, confessing just how busy he had been. How have you kept the cross at the forefront of your minds during the past 14 days? I did make one suggestion. And if any of you picked up on it, I'd love to hear some feedback. Did that suggestion help? If you weren't here two weeks ago, ask somebody afterwards what I did suggest. But as Paul 
continued to put pen to paper, he went on to explain how that by dying on that cross, Christ redeemed us. He liberated us. He set us free. But free from what exactly? Well, look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Free from the curse of the law. You see, Paul wanted to make it clear to his readers that, listen, you don't have to keep the law in order to gain life. It's not about what you do. It's all about what Christ, what Jesus Christ has done for you. When he gave himself for your sins, is how Paul puts it in his opening remarks in chapter 1. That is the gospel for Paul. That is this ultimate breath of fresh air that brings freedom. That we are rescued. That we are accepted. That we really do belong to the people of God by grace alone. Via faith in Christ alone. There's no add-ons required, no extras are needed, and any hint or any suggestion of a Jesus plus gospel has got to be avoided at all costs. It's got to be kicked well into touch. And therefore these people, these people who were doing the rounds in Galatia, who were saying, listen, you new Christians, you Christians in this part of the world, you've also got to observe the law. You've also got to be subject to circumcision. These Judaizers, as they've come to be affectionately known, were completely out of order as far as Paul was concerned. And they needed to be challenged. And as we pick up the letter in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul's right in the middle of arguing his case. So let's read from verses 15 down to 29. And as we usually do, let's stand for the public reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Jesus, just just as no one can set aside or add a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but unto your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator, that's Moses. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would surely and certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was put in charge of us until Christ came, that we may be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Grab a seat. What was all that about? Do you know there is so much in there? There really is so much in there. 
And I've got to be honest with you, it's incredibly technical. And I don't know how you found listening to it. I don't know how you found looking at it as as you heard it read. But it is very technical. And in many ways you could spend hours going through those verses. And you probably should. But one key question that's on everybody's lips, and Paul himself asks it in verse 19, is this. What then was the purpose of the law? I mean, if faith alone is the issue. If faith alone is the issue. And if those who have faith belong with Abraham, whereas anyone who relies on observing the law is under a curse, which is what Paul says in verses 9 and 10, then why, 430 years after Abraham, did God even think it was necessary to introduce the law to Moses on Mount Sinai? It's a great question. What's the point of the law? It's all about faith. And Paul recognizes that that's a great question, and so he answers it. Look at verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law's main work was to expose sin. It was given to show us exactly what sin is, ultimately an offense to God. Paul also deals with this in his letter to Romans, when he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. A little later on in the same letter he says, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. So in other words, the law was given to help people see the reality and the consequences of sin. The law, if you like, lifts the lid of our respectability. So whenever, for example, a lie is told, a car is stolen, a song is illegally downloaded, a husband has an affair, sin and our sinfulness is revealed. That's the law's God-given duty. It was, and in a sense, still is. The law uncovers sin. The law enables us to know what is it that offends a holy God. So it uncovers that in our lives. And then, as we recognize our sinfulness, as we recognize the offense, then we are encouraged to reach out and embrace the hope of the gospel. John Stott put it like this. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And then it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. And you see, this is one of the reasons why we must never downplay sin. Because if we don't take sin seriously, we'll never take the gospel seriously. I honestly believe it's one of the reasons why so many people today don't take our gospel seriously. Because they no longer take sin seriously. There is a tendency today to go soft on sin. In fact, to avoid calling it for what it is. It's a sin, was the title of a 1987 Pet Shop Boys song who were on Glastonbury's main stage last night. But to call anything a sin in our culture is unpopular. It's okay today to say, do you know something? People have issues. And that's how we explain their attitude and their behavior. But to suggest that they sin or are sinners, well, that's not going to win you friends or influence too many people. 
But unless we nail sin for what it is, see it for what it is, accept it for what it is, then we're never going to nail, see, or accept the gospel for what it is. That's how it works. One commentator has said, no man or no one has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. Again, John Stott puts it brilliantly in these graphic words. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ in order to be set free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification in life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. And not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. See, the law was added, says Paul, because of transgressions. It discloses what we're really like so that we can embrace the gospel for what it is really like, which is truly good news, the ultimate breath of fresh air. So the law is highly significant. The law, says Paul, it has an acute purpose. The law is not a bad thing. The law is a God thing. But Paul needs to keep writing. And so he does. And as he does, you sense, and I want us to see this this morning. As he does, Paul has taken his readers on a journey. It's a journey that actually spans 2,000 years. It's a journey that brings together three key characters of the Christian faith. Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. They're all there in those verses that we read together. It's a journey that leads people from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's a journey, or maybe a better phrase to use would be, it's a spiritual pilgrimage that the Galatians, that the Judaizers, and indeed every single one of us must navigate. From the promise given to Abraham, through the law given to Moses, and into an experience of the promise that comes through Jesus Christ. That's the journey that Paul wanted to take these people on. That's the journey we must go on. We need to embrace, we need to get hold of, we need to come to terms with a holistic gospel, if you like, a whole Bible gospel, not just a New Testament version. And let me explain what I mean by that in case you think I'm advocating or I'm suggesting the very thing that Jesus said or Paul said that we must avoid a Jesus plus gospel. You see, there were and there maybe still are some people who want or they like the idea of receiving a blessing. I mean, who doesn't? And God had promised that blessing to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he was not only going to bless him, but he was going to bless all peoples through him. And 430 years later, as we read through Moses on Mount Sinai, God gives the law. Why? To reveal sin, to clarify what it is. But the story doesn't end there. The journey continues. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until that faith that has come would be revealed. 
So the law was put in charge of us until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. In other words, what Paul's saying, listen, the law takes us somewhere. It actually leads us to Christ. And it's Christ who changed and changes changes everything. And in those three verses, Paul actually explains that before Christ came, before faith really came, then the law had two effects. Or under the law, there are two effects. Have a look at it. The first is that we're confined, we're restricted. That's verse 23. In other words, what Paul's saying here is, listen, living under the law is going to feel like being held captive in prison. It's going to feel like you're being hemmed in. Secondly, verse 24, Paul describes the law as our guardian in the New Living Translation, the English Standard Version. The RSV says the law has you as its custodian. Or the NIV says the law was put in charge of us. In other words, the law is a bit, and this is the word many people like to use, the law is a bit like a tutor. It keeps you on your toes. It sharpens your understanding. Although the the exact word that Paul uses indicates that this tutor operates a wee bit like a disciplinarian. Keeping you in order, keeping you in line, keeping you in check. And so the law can sometimes come across as very harsh and very severe. But now that Christ has come, says Paul, those days are over. You don't need to live under the law. You don't need to feel trapped. You don't need to be oppressed. Things are different. But more importantly, and this is the key bit, you are different. You are different. Because now, look at verse 26, you are in Christ Jesus. You have a new identity. Which Paul's about to explain. We'll get there in a moment. You see, for Paul, the key issue for his readers was this. Why would you want to buy into the teaching of these Judaizers who want to take you back to prison, who want to take you back to living under the law rather than encourage you on into freedom in Christ Jesus? Why would you want to do that? And Paul has taken his readers on this incredible journey and they're thinking from Abraham to Moses to Jesus and he's explained, listen, this is how they connect. This is how they are connected. And for the Galatian Christians, this was critical. This helped them to make sense, not only of their story, but of God's story. And likewise for us, we need to see the big picture. We need to have a whole Bible perspective on our salvation history. We need to hear the promise to Abraham that God is going to bless us through him. We need to see how the law that was given to Moses exposes our sin. And we need to know and embrace and enjoy the freedom then that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the spiritual pilgrimage we each must go on. Let's go back to this opening question. Who am I? And it's a question that we can look at as we reflect on just the last four verses of this text. You see, from verses 26 to 29, Paul tells the Galatians who they are. Who they are now. Who they are now in Christ. And that is where we must go. That is where I must locate myself. You sometimes hear people talk about, listen, I'm off to find myself. We can only truly find ourselves in Christ. 
And in Christ, I am a child of God. In Christ, I am part of an amazing family. In Christ, I am an heir of the promise. And by the way, my name's David Dunlop, and I'm a Baptist minister, and I'm a husband, and I'm a dad, and I'm a Chelsea supporter. That's, the, that's really the way it should be. You see, to begin with, I am a child of God. How am I a child of God? Look at verse 26. By faith, through faith, in Christ Jesus. And so now, the Creator God, the Judge of all the earth, who we will do right, is also my Father. He has adopted me. We've been singing about that this morning. He has adopted me into His family. There's no longer distance. There's no longer disconnection because of sin. There's no relationship. There's no intimacy. And therefore, I can cry. As Paul will later go on to say, I can cry, Abba, Father. That's who I am. I'm a child of God. That's my primary identity. And as Paul makes this point, he reminds the Galatians of their baptism. He writes, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. It wasn't that the Galatians were in Christ by baptism. They were in Christ by faith, but baptism was and still is the outward, visible, highly symbolic act that amongst other things confirms that someone belongs to Father God. That we are his children. Here tonight, 7pm, Eugene will be baptized. By faith, Eugene has become a child of God. By baptism, he makes that known. Or he wants to make that known. Second aspect of my identity is I'm part of an amazing family. This amazing family where there are no distinctions. Sorry, there there are distinctions. There are differences, but there are no divisions. We are all one, says Paul, in Christ. Verse 28, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. So culturally or racially in some ways, we are one. Now, we're not the same. We, We all know that. We are not the same, but we're equal. And in Galatia, where the Judaizers were struggling to accept Gentiles, this was radical teaching. Paul, we can't all be one. No, you are. In Christ, you're one. Socially, we are one. Again, we're not the same. Slave, free. Circumstances of birth, of wealth, of privilege, of education, they're all real. We don't deny those things. But they must never, ever divide us. Gender-wise, we are one. We're not the same, obviously. But we're equal. And again, in that context where women were often despised or ill-treated or exploited, this was a relatively explosive comment. There's neither male nor female. You see, my relationship with God has changed. I am his child. But my relationship with you has changed. You're my brother's And my sisters, you're different from me. Yes, you are. But you're equal. And for the Galatians and for the Judaizers, this was a life-altering, mind-stretching discovery. And for us, it still is in many ways. Because sometimes we do continue to create divisions amongst the family of God. We do. I'm a child of God, I'm part of this amazing family, and finally, I'm an heir of the promise. Verse 29, listen, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. That's a different use of the word, and I know I haven't dwelt on the word seed, and I don't have time to. It's a different use of the word seed in this verse than it was earlier. 
but you are Abraham's seed, and therefore your heirs according to his promise. You see, in Christ, all of us, and this isn't in Christ we belong to Abraham, and in belonging to Abraham, we are heirs of the promise that God made with him. The promise of relationship, the promise of blessing. You see, the Judaizers wanted the promise, but they thought that they and everyone else had to follow the law in order to get it. Paul comes along and he says, no. If you belong to Jesus, then the inheritance is yours. So I'm in Christ. Because I'm in Christ, I'm a child of God. Part of this amazing family. I'm an heir of the promise. Marlon Brando was once asked, how are you? This was his reply. How do I know how I am when I don't even know who I am? In 1930s Germany, young people were taught to say, you are nothing. The nation is everything. 1979, Pink Floyd sang, all in all, you're just another brick in the wall. And I don't, you see, I don't need to develop some philosophy of meaning. I don't need to buy into this idea that life has no meaning or has no purpose. I don't need to search for belonging. I don't need to crave love, security, and significance. I have found not necessarily what I'm looking for, but what I have found is what I need. I don't need to find myself because I find my place in eternity. I'm related to God as His Son. I find my place in society. I'm related to the family of God. And I have found my place in history. I am related to a succession of God's people down through the ages. I have joined this long, long line of believers throughout the whole course of time. The Hebrews 11 crowd are cheering me on and I'm connected to them. How? By faith in Christ. So who am I? In Christ, I'm a child of God. In Christ... I'm united to all the redeemed people of God, past, present, future. In Christ, I discover my identity. In Christ, I find my feet. In Christ, I come home. And what I would like us to do, just as we close this service, is I'd like to invite you to stand with me. Please stand with me. And I'm going to just give you a moment to look down that list of statements. And I'm going to invite us to say it together if we can. Because remember what I said at the start. Knowing who you are will then dictate how you live. You see, if you know you're a child of God, that should profoundly influence how you live your life this week. If you know that you are connected, you're united to all the redeemed people of God, past, present, future, that should impact how you live this week. If you've found your, if you've come home, those identity things should just radically change the way you live your life. So if you can, let's say this together. In Christ, I am a child of God. In Christ, I am united to all the redeemed people of God, past, present, and future. In Christ, I discover my in Christ, I find my faith. In Christ, I come home. Let's pray. Father, we again stand before you thankful for the gospel.
this breath of fresh air that provides freedom. I thank you that you have rescued us, accepted us, welcomed us into your family. You've adopted us into your family because of Jesus. And so it's in Christ that we know who we are. And so I want to pray for anyone this morning who really struggles with issues of identity. Who really isn't sure who they are. And has been looking in lots of places to find their identity. Father God, I pray they would come home and find their identity in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.